Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Kelly McFall, and I'm the host of New Books and Genocide Studies. In a moment, you'll listen to an interview with Andrew Wolford, a sociologist and author of several books about colonial genocides and First Americans or Native Americans in North America. I wanted to take just a moment to tell you that uh, this interview uh, was interrupted due to issues with Skype. And so about half of the way through the interview, the sound will suddenly sound a little bit different. The content shouldn't be effective, nor should your ability to understand the interview. I just wanted to give you a heads up that as the volume level changes, uh, that's why. And uh, you may notice the laughter at the beginning of the interview from outside of the room. Here I'll just say that I taped this on a university campus at Newman where I teach, uh, and a number of undergraduates were just exiting uh, an exam and were apparently pleased with what they did. So that explains the laughter. And so we'll go on to the interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Andrew Wolford to the show. Andrew is a sociologist at the University of Manitoba and a prolific writer and researcher on a variety of fields. Today, we're going to talk in detail about his new book, This Benevolent Experiment, Indigenous Boarding Schools, Genocide, and Redress in Canada and the United States. The book is a fascinating analysis of the boarding school system in the U.S. and Canada from a variety of perspectives. But we'll also be talking more briefly about two other works that Andrew has been involved in, starting with an edited collection titled Colonial Genocide in Indigenous North America, published in 2014, and concluding with a brief discussion of a special issue of the Journal of Genocide Research, edited by Andrew and Jeff Benvenuto. I hope I got that name right. Together, I think they offer a comprehensive sense of the state of research on colonial genocide in Canada and the U.S., and as well, a real sense of where the field of genocide studies stands regarding colonial genocides. It promises to be a great, albeit jam-packed, session. So with that, Andrew, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies. Thank you for having me. So let's start by... um, why don't you say just a little bit of, of, of about your background? How did you get to be a sociologist, and, and how did you get to be an academic? Uh, well, I grew up on Vancouver Island, which is in the west coast of Canada, and um, I was involved in human rights-related um, organizations like Amnesty International. So when I started at university, I was uh, immediately attracted to sociology and uh, particularly to the the con- conceptual tools provided by sociology as a way of understanding one's own place in the world. So so you said um, Amnesty International. Why did you turn that into a professional interest? What, what, what made you decide you wanted to spend your life, at least partly, studying violence and genocide? Um, originally, I started off studying um, sociology of religion and um, oh doing more quantitative-based sociological analysis. And it was late in my degree when I suddenly woke up and realized that I had this area of interest that I hadn't explored and that I could explore academically, that there was a world called genocide studies and uh, human rights-related research that was available to me and um, was a bigger draw to me as something I wanted to invest my time in. So I, I began slowly looking at issues related to indigenous peoples, but I, I started off studying um, uh, with my master's thesis, the, the Zapatista uprising in Chiapas, Mexico. And I, at the end of that, was sitting at the edge of the, the La Condon jungle in uh, Chiapas, uh, reading some newspapers from home and wondering why I knew nothing about indigenous, indigenous people in my own country huh. and uh, settler colonialism in my own country. So why one of one of the things about genocide studies is that it's such an interdisciplinary field, or or perhaps multidisciplinary field. Well, what do you think sociology brings to that field? What what ways does sociology 
in the practice of sociology, how does sociology approach genocide in a way that's different than other fields? Um, sociology certainly provides tools for structural and institutional analysis um, to understand the place of the individual within these broader and pa broader patterns of social behavior, which I think is important for um, adding complexity or, or texture to some of the more uh, reductive or, or narrow stories we sometimes tell through uh, vehicles like law, you know, where there's a clear purpose in terms mm -hmm. of identifying mm -hmm. a, a perpetrator, um, identifying intent. Um, sociology allows us to sort of flesh out some of the, the well, as I say again, the complexity of the ways in which um, the attempted destruction of groups unfolds. Well, let's, let's turn to the, to the books that we're going to look at. Um, and it's quite, I have to say, quite an extraordinary outburst of writing and publishing that you've done in the last couple of years. Um, what happened that all of these, these three pieces all came out within a couple of years? I was very fortunate to have a year-long sabbatical, and um, knowing that I was going to have to enter an administrative position at my university, I realized I'd better um, pursue these projects that I've, I dreamed of following up, so I, I, I worked hard on that sabbatical. So, so the first one that appeared is um, the edited volume, Colonial Genocide in Indigenous, in Indigenous North America. Yes. Um, it looks like that book emerged from a conference, is that right? Yeah, a, a small workshop we held here at the University of Manitoba, uh, which we partnered with uh, Jeff Benvenuto and Alex Hinton from Rutgers mm -hmm. University to, to organize. Well, what was the? Why did you decide that that kind of conference was appropriate? What What did you want to achieve from it? Um, well, we um, actually the conversation about it started on a, a bus in Buenos Aires. <laughs> we were at a meeting where all members of the International Association of Genocide Scholars, mm -hmm. um, and this is the largest association of genocide scholars in the world, and we were visiting um, the detention sites in Buenos Aires mm -hmm. uh, that had been used by the military junta, and we began talking about how, for the first time at this conference, there actually were a couple papers on colonial genocide, which had been, I shouldn't say for the first time, but it, there had been a fairly small uh, representation of scholars studying this issue in our conferences in the past. And we thought, particularly in North America, we needed to bring together scholars to talk about this because Australia and um, other parts of the world had moved much further ahead of North America in terms of thinking about colonial genocide. So we thought it was time for uh, to, to get together a group of scholars. So we applied for some funding, and um, um, quite soon after that, we're ready to host the workshop. So, so I know from experience that that conferences often get a somewhat disparate variety of papers. Um, what what are some of the unifying insights and themes that emerged out of that conference and, and from the book as a whole? Um. Well, one of the things we did when we were, I mean, we invited people to participate in it, so uh, there, wasn't an, there wasn't an open call for papers. Instead, um, we tried to achieve a balance between American and Canadian scholars, uh, scholars who self-identified as indigenous people, and uh, what we might call settler scholars, mm -hmm. and um, as well as... Um, Issues, although there was some overlap, and we wanted, you know, but we want people to be dealing with issues related to uh, physical destruction, particularly in the United States, but also questions of um, cultural destruction. So we we tried to get something of a balance there, so that there would be some common themes, and um, we also tried to invite people who weren't necessarily fully immersed in the field of genocide studies. Mm. Because um, as an interdisciplinary field, we wanted to bring different perspectives and voices that uh, often aren't heard within that field. So some of the people, like um, Robbie Etheridge, who does more um, ethnohistorical work, um, brought a very 
interesting and early American perspective on the issues. And then other people like um, uh, Tasha Hubbard, who writes about the buffalo, um, you know, there had been little we had read previous to that, uh, looking at the where animals fit into the larger genocide discussion, and particularly in the North American context, we thought that was a crucial paper to have as part of the collection. So I think um, what comes through in the volume, though, is that this essentially contested notion of genocide is 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 just that that you know we don't have any agreement amongst the authors about genocide nor did we try to impose agreement mm-hmm. instead you know the frame is that of what are you know in what ways are groups destroyed and what are some of the the complexities of the patterns of destruction as they unfold um so you know that was an issue that people approached from many different different angles um your essay in the book is actually I, I I take the kind of heart of or or an early working through of the ideas in in the book. Um, so let's turn to the benevolent this benevolent experiment, recognizing that we may go back and draw some themes from from the edited collection. Um, and in this book, you deal specifically with um, indigenous school schools and especially boarding schools in the U.S. and Canada. And and for those of the people in the audience who don't know much about this. What are these schools? Well, these schools, um, as the title suggests, were an experiment in social engineering um, that has a long history in North America with various missionary societies running these sorts of schools as places where they sought to transform indigenous peoples from their indigenous cultures into more uh, European or settler ways of life. And um, But they really become formalized in the late 1900s and are, become more systematic, systematic as um, there's an effort to implement them in a more widespread manner to capture more indigenous children um, to fully trans form indigenous societies and indigenous cultures through the schooling of their children, um, which is the stated objective that of, you know, resolving the Indian problem through um, aggressive civilization and assimilation. Um, so let's start there. Uh, you, you, you spend some, you, you start out with the book in some ways, although it's not in page numbers the first by talking about the emergence of a common agreement that there was such a thing as an Indian problem. And you talk about this uh, or, or this and, and other things together as a, a collective action frame. Mm-hmm. So, so what is the Indian problem and, and what is a collection collective active action frame? Can't talk today. My apologies. Talked too much this morning. Um, and how does that emerge in the 19th century? Right. Yeah, because, um, I mean, the, the notion of an Indian problem or of, a, you know, a, a population within a colonial space as being a problem is, is an old one. I mean, original discussions of the Indian problem could be traced back to uh, India, India proper. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, this language um, is imported to North America to, to refer to those peoples misidentified as Indians, the indigenous peoples of North America. And originally, uh, the indigenous peoples were not perceived as a problem. They were um, allies and uh, important parts of a symbiotic relationship around, based around you know, fur trade, military alliances, and other aspects of the initial contact period, um, whereby particularly you know, the, the fur traders relied heavily upon um, indigenous peoples in order to um, run their businesses, and the indigenous peoples profited off those relationships through trade. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were problems, obviously. Um, this is a simplification, but it was not a time when indigenous population was perceived as a direct problem. But as settlement became the focus in North America, and as you know, British in particular were able to assert their control more fully on the continent, and as certain resources upon which indigenous peoples relied, like the buffalo, um, became depleted, 
Um, there was a perception that indigenous people represented a problem or a barrier to settlement that um, whether it was in terms of building the nation and establishing national sovereignty or whether it was their claims upon the land which the, the settlers had a competing claim to or felt they had a competing claim to uh, these were perceived as you know problems as in the form of an obstacle to um, European intentions here so I think it's important as a collective action frame now the Indian problem I should also step back a little bit and say that there were different understandings of what the solution to this problem was mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. debates going on about whether indigenous people can be assimilated and to become like uh, Europeans or whether they are too backward too primitive uh, uh, using the, the the racist language of the time um, whether they were too backward and primitive to ever actually um, emerge from their quote-unquote savage state so you have a variety of solutions coming from different places within society whether it's from the, the scientific community the religious community the military the government different actors in different positions who see this problem differently and see the solution to it but they begin to um, come together under what I refer to as a collective action frame um, you know, often in genocide, we begin by just talking about intent, as though intent mm -hmm. just exists within the individual, that um, we are, you know, almost isolated units who fashion intent out of, out of nothing. But where we fashion that intent out of, I think, is a, a broader, more important question that sociologists can contribute to. And the, the notion of collection action frames, which comes out of the sociology of social movements, provides a way of thinking about the way groups of people begin to um, think about problems in the same way, to understand the world in the same way. So having that action frame, you know, it literally frames the way you see the world, directs you, directs your action, helps you formulate intent, helps you formulate motives for your action. So these larger discussions where I begin, are, I see as sort of the, the basic tools, the, mm -hmm. the, the resources that people have available to them as they start to think about, I mean... <laughs> I'm talking about settlers in particular, as they start to think about indigenous, the indigenous people in their midst. So you, you took us almost up to this point. How is it that, <clears throat> excuse me, assimilative schooling becomes a, a kind of broadly accepted and widely applied response to this perceived Indian problem? Yeah, I mean, there's multiple multiple reasons that seem to emerge, um, you know, there's these interesting reports that are coming from uh, men who are soldiers who are who are fighting in the Indian Wars, but they also are using the tools of economics to assess what they're doing in warfare, and they're looking at the costs of the Indian Wars in the United States. And these sorts of reports have uh, wide influence on how people perceive the, the quote-unquote Indian problem. Um, because you know, the the logic is that it costs more to quote kill kill an, an Indian than hmm. it does to educate him, um, and so there's an economics to it that pushes people. There's also um, a reformist movement of you know people who are generally aghast of hearing the stories of the the, the horrors of battles that are taking place in massacres that are occurring against indigenous communities and indigenous people are, are coming to eastern eastern towns sites to you know tell about their experiences and what's happened to their families and um, reformers are calling for a different approach um, what's interesting I mean that these people are in a way liberal and and uh, mm -hmm. progressive for their times but they're not necessarily breaking out of the framework of the Indian problem they're still seeing indigenous peoples and their communities as problems, as backwards, as uh, primitive, but they're looking for a more humanitarian approach to eliminating uh, this problem. So, um, you know, it's at this point that um, Richard Pratt, Lieutenant Richard Pratt, 
um, in Fort Marion in Florida, uh, who's uh, running a prison for captured warriors from the Indian Wars, uh, begins using the tools of education to try to work with his his prisoners who are suffering under the, the isolating and austere conditions of the prison. So he finds by through education and through military training, he's able to um, seemingly uh, transform these individuals. And he, he's a he's a great self-promoter. He begins marching them through town, calling in all sorts of reformers who um, are uh, taken by his his self-display of the of these people and um he begins to build support for developing um you know the first industrial style boarding school and of course uh canada that's in canada where um there the indian war you know knowledge of the indian wars had passed over to Canada, because of course you even had a indigenous from the groups from the U.S. escaping into Canada, and um, some also um, battles taking place on the prairies um, in Canada, but nothing to the extent that happened in the U.S., but still uh, Pratt Experiment gains attention in Canada, where schooling has been used in the past and has been recommended in the past. Uh, so they begin to look more at the U.S. model to see how they can uh, more systematically use schooling as a way to deal with this problem without the costs, without the horrors of, um, you know, the more physical eliminatory meth- methods. So how, and I want to get back in a moment to the, the, the variety of levels in which you through which you examine this issue, but but for now let's stick at the macro level. How how did these policies evolve over time, and, and what are some of the commonalities and differences in the approaches of Canada and the U.S.? Yeah, they um, it, it's interesting to see um, in the U.S. how there seems to be greater change and less. Mm-hmm. Less uh, the policy is less static than it is in Canada. Um, in Canada, the notion of the Indian problem—I mean, it remains—you uh, know, traces of it remain even in, in discourses around Indigenous policy today. Um, but you know, in its most, in its strongest form, where you know, assimilation is a aggressive simulation is the goal lasts for a very long period in Canada without with little changes little diversity uh, the same group of people run Indian affairs in Canada for a long time and the, there's a standoff because one key difference you have to remember in Canada is when Canada implemented its system of indigenous boarding schools um, rather than doing it through the state through government offices, they saw the missionary societies that were located within these communities as a resource that they should tap into to make it more um, feasible within the Canadian context, given how you know, the great distance between some of the indigenous communities mm-hmm. and their, their distance from city centers, um, they saw the missionary societies as a useful intermediary for delivering a simulative education. So the schools are set up not by the government, but rather by um, missionary societies from the Catholic Church or from various Protestant churches. And um, so this this uh, setup then with uh, these churches controlling the schools and the government uh, controlling the purse strings also leads to a lot of stagnancy and um, in the policy because the two are always um, um, sort of sawing each other off mm-hmm. when it comes to making any changes. So even when the government wants to implement changes that they think will be more efficient or more effective or um, uh, will look will look so poorly in terms of uh, what's being reported in terms of the, the harms happening at the schools. Um, you know, often they'll meet resistance from the churches who want to run things in a certain way, and and vice versa. The two sort of are at a stalemate with one another. Whereas in the U.S., um, uh, given that the institutional structure is mostly located within the the government, 
uh, the schools change a little bit as the fashions of government change over the years. So one of the things, one of the really interesting things about this book is that, that you do have a policy discussion. And when I say policy, I, I guess it's kind of the standard understanding of policy at the macro level, at the government, the federal or, or, or regional level. But but you also look at it, and the sociological terms, as I understand it, are at the meso or micro levels. And so could you say something a little bit about why you decided you need to look from all of those perspectives? And, and then um, why you settled on this really interesting metaphor, um, the settler colonial mesh, as a way of linking these together and helping under- explain how all of this works. The lessons of genocide studies, and I take from other, uh, you know, historians, sociologists, and other people who have worked on other case studies is, you know, how the policy level only tells you so much. Policy has to be implemented and then enacted on the ground. And funny things happen as you go through this chain from the macro where policy is envisioned and circulates and provides, you know, uh, discourses are ways for which people to think about these ideas. As you move through the institution, attempt to institutionalize and organize it and implement the policy and then have actual actors uh, embody and live this policy, there's a lot of variety and a lot of unevenness. And I wanted a way to try to understand that unevenness. So without necessarily seeming to dilute what I see as the seriousness of what's going on here, this experiment that's really meant to eliminate indigenous communities so that they're no longer indigenous communities to to destroy cultures. So, you know, in this way, there's space for individual actors who maybe refuse to follow the policy line. There's space for um, intensifications or people going beyond the call of duty in terms of implementing the policy for harsher applications of it. Um, And this is where I like the notion of the settler colonial mesh, because if we think in terms of networks and really what you have at the macro, meso, and micro levels are various forms of networks at the, the policy you, know, you have networks amongst various different policy makers and the people who are influencing the policy makers. You have networks between the various institutions that are charged with implementing the nets and nets overlaying nets overlaying nets. You get a mesh. And what can happen with a mesh is it can tighten around certain places. Say so you have a, a superintendent or principal of a school who themselves is a very militant believer in assimilation they might introduce more harshness to that environment than exists in another. So in one place, you might have a tightening of that mesh, whereas another supervisor may um, be far more liberally minded, um, may have a great appreciation for indigenous culture and allow it to slip into the school in ways that other uh, supervisors wouldn't. So there you might have gaps opening up in the mesh where there's more possibility for resistance, uh, for subversion of the policy, um, or for the survival of indigenous cultures. So it allows one to think of genocide not simply as absolute destruction, but as a complex process in which, you know, sometimes resistance and survival is possible due to a particular set of conditions, where in other places, in our other regions, or other time periods, you know, it may not be possible just because of the, the tightness of that net. So it's a way to deal with unevenness in um, across space and across time. We've spent so far most of the interview talking about the macro level and policy, but but much of the book is actually about looking at individual schools and looking at, at the dynamics at the individual school level. So, so Andrew, could you say a little bit about how you chose the schools you did and why you thought it was important to look at individual schools? Sure. Um, well, I chose the schools. I'm basically was looking for schools that were located uh, relatively close to larger indigenous communities. Um, So that was as much as I was looking for some sort of comparability. I didn't want to focus on finding an analog for Canadian schools in the U.S. because part of my project is mapping the differences, how different regions can have different experiences based upon the confluence of factors that... um, 
take place that are existing within that region. So to get those regional dynamics, it wasn't crucial to have too many levels of similarity as we may sometimes do, sometimes do in comparative research. Um, so I was really interested by the schools in New Mexico, in particular the Pueblo experience, because the, the Pueblo seemed to have a very distinct experience, uh, both historically within the United States and um, also in relation to their school with the levels of power they amassed in order to be able to influence uh, things that happened within that school. So I thought that was really an interesting case and also contrasts as well with the, the Diné and the Apache um, communities that were in the same region, some of their more negative experiences of schooling and the way in which schooling was imposed upon them. Not to say that it wasn't negative for many Pueblo students as well, but uh, the communities had different levels of power that they, they were able to amass in terms of influencing how the schools operate upon their communities. Um, and I was located in Manitoba, so of course um, the Manitoba schools had a particular appeal to me, um, and Fort Alexander in particular, knowing several survivors and working with several survivors from that school, I was familiar with their experiences and, and um, wanted to look into that that case more. Um, so that was uh, that was the rationale, and I thought it was very important to look locally for you know, just a, a risk of repeating myself, find out how different things happen at different schools. It's all well and good to look at the macro level and to do these uh, cross-national comparisons, but based upon the existing literature, I had a good sense that, um, you know, things at the policy level don't always play out the, the way mm -hmm. they're expected at the local level, and those local differences I thought would bring more more richness to the, to the text or understanding of the ways in which these processes intended to destroy indigenous groups unfold in practice and not just in theory. I, if, if, if our listeners, if our listeners who are not experts of this, if, if they think about these schools at all, what they've probably heard about is stories of, of physical and, and, and perhaps sexual abuse and violence. Um, how prevalent was this and, and to what matter, degree was this kind of an intentional policy approach to um, assimilating the indigenous peoples? And to what degree was it just kind of individual behaviors of individual people? Uh, certainly there was a great deal of the latter. And you now in the Canadian system, there was, um, you know, where you see the, the churches and the state playing their roles in turning a blind eye to the abuse, not reporting it, sanitizing the records so that the abuse was not recorded. But um, through vehicles like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, we are now learning how, how frequent physical and sexual abuse was at the school. I mean, the group of survivors I work with to a person were sexually abused almost almost to a person were sexually abused at the schools and all experienced some forms of physical violence there as well. Um, so it was quite prevalent, particularly at certain schools. And this is where local distinctions matter because it may have been prevalent at certain schools but less prevalent at others um, where other factors may have intervened to not create the environment where that sort of violence was permissible. In the U.S., we know a lot less about. It. I mean, there's certain schools where there's a, there are people on record who have came forward and recounted their stories of physical and sexual abuse, but there hasn't been the same discursive opening in the United States to um, allow survivors to come forward and tell those stories safely without fear of uh, denial, without fear of questioning. So, um, I think there's little sense about how extensive this was throughout the system. Um, certainly physical violence in the early years of the U.S. system you can see as being quite prominent, um, even despite uh, government efforts to tone down some of that violence. Um, but you had a lot of ex-military people who were running the schools, a very military, militaristic atmosphere within the schools. Uh, the guardhouse was sort of the, the place of punishment within the school. Um, so there you can get a, a better sense of, you know, the the amount of violence. And then, you know, in the, the diary of one of the, the superintendents of the Santa Fe Indian School, for example, he would speak about wearing out his buggy whips on huh. children who were, who were, you know, 
seen as uh, transgressing the rules of the school. So, you know, this was quite frequent. Violence can play a role in, of course, uh, submitting and, and demonstrating the power of the, the colonial institution, the power of the full mm-hmm. control over the student's life um, to, you know, sort of create a more docile subject who can be then shaped to fit the European standard that was, you know, which was the idealized outcome for these schools. Um, you know, that said, I, I don't focus as much on the violence because, right. as you know, it is, it is more well-known, and I'm quite interested in the more everyday aspects of cultural destruction of ways in which different techniques and strategies were used to more subtly shift people away from a, one cultural orientation, an indigenous cultural orientation, toward uh, a westernized cultural orientation. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, and I guess we, there's there's not a chance in a brief interview like this to talk about all of the things you talk about, but, but I was really struck by your discussion of knowledge. Uh, as an aspect of the application of policy. Um, can you say a little bit about about how these schools used knowledge um, in this effort? Yeah, I mean, it comes in various ways, various ways and the systems of, of knowledge gathering um, increases, or they improve over time as further power is asserted over indigenous communities. So, um, for those of your listeners who are familiar with the, the work of Michel Foucault, they can probably see yeah. a classic Foucauldian um, idea of knowledge power in play here, where the, whereby you know, the more power one has, the more knowledge one can uh, access, and the more knowledge one has about a population, a subject population, the more you can impose power upon them. And you see that playing out quite quite clearly in the, in the residential and boarding schools for indigenous people. Um, you know, in the early days, the knowledge gained was just simply gaining knowledge about who these children were, where they came from, did they have any brothers and sisters who were not were not yet in school? Um, because you know, in the very early days of the the rest of the boarding school system, they had little knowledge; they didn't have a census to go by, any sort of understanding of how many children were actually out there, um, which they needed to know in terms of if this was going to be a systematic process of. Mm-hmm. You know, cultural transformation. They needed this information, so they'd be gathering that. Um, but more and more, um, they started to gather information about uh, the parents as well. And there, uh, in Canada in particular, it was important to know what church the parents were affiliated with, mm-hmm. uh, especially after 1920 when um, the Indian Act was amended to specify that the children. Uh, parents belonging to a particular religious community, their children were automatically to go to the schools from that religious community. So um, they wanted information from the parents and also about, you know, what kind of work the parents were doing, um, you know, and uh, health health information was of great concern, um, particularly as they became more aware that if they didn't screen for various diseases as the children came in, then they would um, be in danger of importing uh, deadly diseases into the schools. And that's one of the ways in which these schools were most destructive, physically destructive, was through mass disease spread. I haven't talked a lot about the physical destruction, the death within the schools, but um, disease uh, spread through poor conditions within the schools and through negligent uh, healthcare practices are certainly an issue through various periods of the schooling. Uh, but uh, Keeping on the topic of knowledge, I mean, the the net of knowledge extends as the system goes on, where they start tracking the students after their schooling more and more as well to find out are they indeed assimilating, are they being uh, emissaries for civilization as they return to their communities, are they bringing the the, the dispositions of civilization to their communities, and are they keeping watch on each other, are they surveilling each other, are they reporting on their friends when their friends break from civilized patterns of life. So it becomes um, a much wider net of knowledge gathering as the system goes on, as they start tracking more meticulously um, all of their expenses, how much is going in, how much is being paid per student, what is the student's progress, how does the student appear when they came in, and how are they, as they leave the school, 
trying to both demonstrate the schools as, a, as effective institutions in cultural transformation, but also to ensure that the work they do upon the students um, is sustainable and not simply um, bleeding as the students leave the school. So, so in other places in the book, you talk about discipline and desire, and, and I won't ask you about that here, although I would, you know, if, if people are listening, interested in this outside, I think it's an outstanding explanation. But I want to ask you about, about something different. You, you include an entire chapter on, on non-human actors. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you mean by non-human actors and why you thought it was important to talk about them and, and, and maybe pick one space or time or something and maybe briefly sketch out how how they play, how, how, how this particular non-human actor played a role? Yeah, I think um, we tend to be overly human-centric in genocide studies. We tend to think of humans as you know, the sole constituent of the group. And if in indigenous communities, more and more I've interacted with indigenous people in indigenous communities, um, you know, that sort of bias, that, that European assumption of mine has been challenged. And um, again, I'd point back to Tasha Hubbard's chapter in um, the Colonial Genocide in Indigenous North America volume as an example of this. Um, you know, various peoples, uh, you know, for, for many indigenous peoples, their territory is not just something that's instrumental for the group, something that they use in order to sustain themselves. It is actually part of their self-definition. It's uh, the, their relationships with territory are part of the group relations that make the continuing existence of their group possible. So I thought it was important to understand, you know, from a, an uh, effort to, um, to move towards a more decolonizing perspective, uh, I thought it was important to include non-human actors, given their, their often crucial place in indigenous ontologies. Um, but I also thought, you know, there's a lot of attempts by schooling personnel to enlist various forms of non-human actors in order to advance the assimilative process. And, uh, the non-human actors don't always respond in the way they are expected. So space, diseases, time, you know, all these things that are enlisted in a way to try to, um, to deal with indigenous populations do not always uh, respond to our efforts to control them. Mm. So, um, you know, space is an interesting one because it, it plays many different roles, like the, the, the space of the school is very carefully designed for purposes of control. Um, at the Fort Alexander School, for example, in uh, the Seguin First Nation, um, you know, there's a, a fence outside the school that separates the school from the community, and people can actually see their family members walking by outside that fence, uh, but unable to get in. And there's even barbed wire on parts of the fence, and a large gate that closes to keep the community out. And past that point, you have um, cultivated land, landscape land, and then the largest building on the reserve is the school. So it stands, you know, in a very imposing way above all the smaller houses that are in the community, sort of as this symbol of European power. Um, and then the classrooms are organized in a way that um, you know students can be um, have their their movements coordinated, um, particularly with the separation of boys and girls. So uh, boys and girls are seldom kept in con allowed able to be in contact with one another. Brothers and sisters who are at the same school rarely see each other and, and almost never talk to one another within the school. So there's an attempt to coordinate space, but at the same time. Um, Spaces used to resist. Uh, the students always do find spaces where they can sneak away and practice their indigenous languages that they're forbidden to use. Um, they find places to, to steal stuff from the kitchen and to hide potatoes that they'll later cook in uh, the fire or in the boiler room uh, in order to in, in order to add to their, their 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 food because they're all hungry. They're all you know, many of them are starving within the school. And, um, you know, they find creative ways to use space, but 
space also factors in outside the school as the, the communities where they know the local space better. They, they use that space to hide their children, do not bring them to the school. And, um, you know, particularly the Navajo uh, Diné territory, an effort to build roads to expand access into that community. But the, the territory is, for many years, used to resist so that fewer Diné children are sent to schools like um, like Santa Fe and Albuquerque. Um, than you know, and other other indigenous groups in the area. So, space two can be used to resist. So, it's um, yeah, I found it quite interesting to try to understand the diverse ways in which these non-human actors intervene into the human relationships that are occurring locally around a particular school. So I know that you've got another appointment coming up, and we've maybe got four minutes left. And so I know that you won't be able to fully flesh this answer out, but but you do talk um, really carefully and thoughtfully in, in the text, um, as well as in the edited volume, about the nature of genocide and why it is appropriate to use the word genocide um, in this case. So could you perhaps try fairly succinctly to talk about why you think that's the appropriate label? Yeah, I think, you know, first off, I think it's important to understand that I, I come at the term genocide from a sociological perspective. Mm. Um, I do, you know, read case law and the law on genocide. I am familiar with that aspect. But um, as much as I see contemporary lawyers and judges working at tribunals, uh, modern-day genocide tribunals, seeking to aspire towards a more complex sociological understanding of the phenomena of genocide, I still find law to be reductive when we're trying to understand the nature of groups. As a sociologist, I'm interested in how groups sustain themselves and survive. And I understand genocide um, in the tradition of Raphael Lemkin, the, the originator of the term genocide, I understand genocide to be about the protection of the life of groups, not about the life of masses of individuals, but the life of groups. And as a sociologist, I understand groups to be sets of relations, and these relations are what make group life possible. And these relations are often defined by something we call culture. Culture, which is uh, you know not necessarily something that's frozen in time, something that moves, something that changes, something that shifts, but still provides people a store of meaning, of knowledge, of traditions, of language, of all these things that allow the group to recreate itself on a day-to-day -day basis. So that is my interest in ways in which our intergroup relations then uh, especially when you have disparities of power, how these intergroup relations can cause um, the severing of the relationships within a particular group. So when you understand the group as a sociological entity, you understand its potential for destruction, not just to lie in physical destruction or attempts at biological destruction through preventing births within the group, but also to lie within efforts to sever those relationships between members of the group. And this is what clearly happens through vehicles like boarding schools where children are removed from their families for most of the year. They are um, taught to despise their families, to denigrate their cultures, to you know, go back to their communities and they see everything as being filthy, as being dirty, seeing their parents as being backward, as being primitive. Um, you know, in some cases, being told not even to think of their parents as parents anymore and to see the school, the, the principals, the teachers as their new family. So they're being um, socialized into a, a new family environment, removed from these families. I mean, those sorts of those sorts of attempts to break up human relations are devastating to groups and make it very hard for groups to ever uh, reconstitute themselves in the way that they would more normally if allowed to uh, continue their relations. I mean, the interesting thing about groups, groups are never static, they're never stuck in time, but they do tend to persist in their own ways through the, the, you know, the tool of the culture through these relations. An effort to interrupt these relations um, can be similarly devastating 
to the sustainability of those groups as would be uh, destroying a large number of group members. So, well, working, yeah, in ahead, Lemkin, working in the national <laughs> tradition, I'm trying to sort of recover what he saw as kind of sure. as a crucial aspect of the concept of genocide um, when he was attending the United Nations. Genocide Convention, well, the, the talk that led to the development of the United Nations Genocide Convention, um, he was quite quite upset that the nations of the world uh, diluted his concept and took out the notion of cultural genocide, which he had included as Article 3 within an earlier draft. Um, but he, you know, saw the notion of genocide as so important that he didn't want to see, it, see this progress stopped for the sake of cultural genocide, but he was uh, in his memoirs, he you know, notes he felt was going to be quite a loss. But it's 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 been a fascinating discussion, um, and I would love to be able to to unpack some of these ideas more for you with with you and and to talk about the the special issue of the Journal of Genocide Research. I know you've got to go, so we won't do that. But I would encourage the listeners to go um, and and find the books and find the issue and read them. Uh, I've really found them fascinating and, and, and in some ways have started rethinking what I think about genocide based on the readings. So, so Andrew, thank you so much. Um, and I hope that um, as you continue researching these things and as you continue to publish sometime, you'll come back on the show and talk to us some more. I'd be happy to. Thank you so much for talking to me. You've been listening to an interview with Andrew Wolford, author of This Benevolent Experiment, Indigenous Boarding Schools, Genocide and Redress in Canada and the United States, and co-editor of Colonial Genocide in Indigenous North America. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I interview Stefan Irish, author of Justifying Genocide, Germany and the Armenians from Bismarck to Hitler. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.